Well, let me pray for us as we get into this passage in Mark. God, as we come now and we look at your word, uh, would we see Jesus and, uh, and his power to save? Grant us resolute trust in him. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Kids love Disney World. I loved Disney World as a kid. And I would go, I went, we would go as a family every four years. It was a big deal. And we kind of saved up and we planned up for it. And it was like a four-year anticipation. I went when I was four. I went again when I was ten. Um, and, uh, and we almost didn't go when I was ten because I have a little brother that's five years younger. And I happened to have a bow and arrow set around that same time. And the bow and arrow set and the brother did not get along. And so we almost didn't go because I was not a great older brother. Um, so just confessing that to you. But, you know, Disney World was like a magical place. Like a magical kingdom. And I heard about a family that they had this kind of same thing where they built it up and anticipated it and they went across the country to Disney World and they had this magical day at the Magical Kingdom. And then they, they come back from that magical day at the Magical Kingdom and, uh, you know, they've got their stuffed Mickeys and Minis. And then you have the best dreams after a day in Disney World because... You don't even have to ask what to dream about. You dream that you are in a world with all these characters. At least I do. That's why I refer to naps as going to the Magic Kingdom. Because I still go there. I still go there. Well, this family, they, they came. They had this wonderful day. Two brothers and their parents. They went to bed that night. Dreaming in the Magic Kingdom. This glorious day and then they got up the next morning um, and the mother didn't get up she had passed away in the night and the next thing the boys knew is that they were in a car with their silent father driving back across the country and it's such a stark contrast isn't it this this magical beauty of the magic kingdom and entering in in this world of fairy tale and dreams and hope and laughter to the suffering and sickness and even death that plague us in our everyday world. That contrast, I think, depicts the scene that we enter into in Mark 9. In Mark 9, verse 15, we are reminded of where Jesus, Peter, James, and John have been because it says that when the crowd sees Jesus, they are greatly amazed. You see, Jesus and his disciples have just been up on the mountain, and they have had a vision of the glory of the kingdom of God. The curtain has been pulled back, their eyes have been fixed, and they see this glory, and there must be a residue of it on Jesus' face, because the crowd is greatly amazed. But when they come from this 
grand vision of glory, what they enter back into when they descend is a world of sickness and suffering and death. It's a world of conflict and consternation. In fact, it's when Jesus comes back down, he finds the rest of his disciples, verse 14, in a, the midst of a heated fight. What are they arguing about? That's what Jesus wants to know, verse 16. What are you arguing about with them? Well, what's happened is when Jesus was up on the mountain and he took Peter, James, and John, a man came with his boy. His boy has had epileptic fits since he was very, very young. The fits were so bad that the boy loses complete control of his body. Uh, first, he can't speak. His mouth phones. He grinds his teeth. He's, he's thrown on the ground. He becomes stiff and rigid. And it's, and it's been happening to him since he was really, really, really young. Can you imagine how that father must have felt? Many of you can. Because you know what it's like to have a sick child. Some of you, you know what it's like to have a sick child who has seizures. Some of you know what it's like to have a child who has cancer. Some of you know what it's like to have a child with really bad dehabilitating allergies or headaches. And as a parent, it's excruciating. Because you're meant to be the person, you're supposed to be the person that's supposed to always be able to protect your child, to care for them, to love them, to help them, and yet you feel powerless in the face of these things. Uh, and it, it doesn't even have to be extremely severe. I mean, you know, when my daughter gets a fever and it goes up and up and up and up and it won't break for a couple of days, I start getting worried and I feel completely powerless before what's happening. And even if you're not a parent, you know what it's like to have a loved one who's suffering and you feel powerless. This father is powerless. What are we to do when we face something like that? Well, what does he do? We bring our loved ones to Jesus. That's what he does, verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you. But Jesus wasn't there. Jesus had ascended up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And so, the man is left to deal with the disciples. The disciples who Jesus has called and trained and equipped to carry out his ministry. Those disciples. Jesus is away. He's left with the disciples. And so he says, verse 18, I asked the disciples to heal the child because you were gone. Now, does this scenario sound familiar? I guarantee the early church wouldn't have missed it. Jesus has ascended into the glory of the Father. They are left to carry on his ministry. It's the exact same situation that, the, that Mark's readers would have been in. The exact same situation that the early church has been in, would have been in. And it is the exact same situation that you, are, uh, that you and I are in. We are the body of Christ. Jesus has ascended into the glory of the Father. And we are left to carry out his 
words and works and to spread them throughout the world. See, Marsh readers would have, would have not missed it. But notice verse 18. He asked the disciples to heal the child, but, quote, they were not able. I wonder if you can relate. You know, when you are called into the ministry of Jesus, Jesus will call you into things that are beyond challenging, insurmountable. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's, it, it's being involved in a married couple's life, and they come to you in the 11th hour, and neither of them want to make any changes, but they come and ask, you know, help us save our marriage. And you feel like this is, this is intractable. Maybe it's that you are, uh, you're ministering to someone and then all of a sudden they stop returning your calls and you can't find them anymore and they've disappeared. And you think, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Some of, some of you in here, you've walked along people, uh, alongside people with severe mental illnesses uh, who have suffered to such a degree that carrying on a, co- a coherent and cogent conversation is next to impossible. And you think, I can't even carry on a conversation with them for two minutes. How am I going to explain the gospel in a way that they can accept it? Lord, This seems impossible. And I feel powerless before it. And even if it's not in ministry, we face these things in life all the time. I mean, it could be medical bills that are piling up from a sick child and you wonder, how are we going to pay for it? It could be problems at work where you think, I don't have resources and I don't have time and I don't have the personnel, and there are these challenges and these needs that need to be met, and they can't be met, and what's going to happen? I mean, some of you work in higher education, and there's a lot of anxiety about the future. Some of you, uh, work, in, uh, you work in the medical profession, and there's a lot of anxiety about the future, and needs have to be met, but you feel like there aren't the resources there. How can we overcome this? What happens when you face a challenge, when you face challenges that you feel you don't have the resources to overcome? Well, let me tell you what happens to me. I get frustrated. I start energetically throwing everything I can at the problem. Once I energetically throw everything I can at the problem, I start getting exhausted and then frustrated. And then when I start getting frustrated, I start getting like short with people. And then that shortness can oftentimes end up in disagreements and arguments that have nothing to do with why I'm short or frustrated or anything else, right? I mean, marriages face this all the time, not mine or yours, but, you know, marriages, right? 
uh, a couple is there, and I don't know, they're making some big decision like selling a home and looking for another. Um, not mine, yours. Um, and, you know, you, and you're sitting there and you're like, it, it, you feel this tension with your spouse. Why is there this tension there? And you're like, oh, maybe it's not actually about them at all. It's about these other things. That's why the disciples are arguing. Why are you arguing, Jesus asks. They're arguing because they face a challenge that they cannot solve. You know, many of our arguments come from frustrations over the fact that we are not God and we cannot save ourselves and we cannot save others. And yet we don't recognize that. And Jesus responds to them in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now those are some strong words. O faithless generation. They actually echo the words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees who were persecuting him. They also echo the words, in, that's in 8.12, they also echo the words in 8.38 that Jesus speaks about persecutors, and yet now Jesus is applying them to his own disciples. You know, Mark, he believes that the line between the followers of Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus, well, it's not as clear-cut as we would like. It's not white hats and black hats. There's a lot of gray. And there's a lot of white and black that runs through us all. Follower of Jesus or not. And Mark is saying, look, the, the same faithlessness that happens to those who persecute the church, to the Pharisees who are out to get me, guess what? That happens in your hearts as well. And so Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I wonder, how do you, how do you hear those words? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I think what I hear when I initially read them and what I, 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 I normally hear is I hear, why couldn't you just heal the boy? Why can't you just get it right? How long do I have to put up with you, disciple? And the reason I hear him say that to the disciples, I think the reason we do, is because we often hear Jesus speaking like that to us. Why can't you be a better husband? Why can't you be a better father? Why can't you be a better employee or employer? Why can't you just meet my standards? Standards that feel impossible. And then we get kind of bitter with God because he feels overbearing but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, just ask yourself the question, why is Jesus so upset with his disciples? Jesus is not upset with the disciples because they could not heal this boy. Jesus is not upset with the disciples because they could not heal this boy. Jesus is upset with the disciples because they thought they could. Look at the end of the passage. At the end of the passage, in verse 28, the disciples ask, why couldn't we heal the boy? 
And in verse 29, Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know what that means? It means that the disciples were trying to heal the boy without prayer. Prayer, it's a posture of dependence. It's a divesting of self. It's saying, I am looking outside myself to the resources of another. And they were trying to heal this boy without prayer, which means they were trying to do the work of Jesus, but not in the strength of Jesus. In this life, we will face troubles. Or, as the man in black said to Buttercup, life is pain, your highness. And anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. In this world, we will face trouble, pain, challenges, hardship, heartache. And here's the question. How will we face them? The question is not if we will face them. The question is how will we face them? And will we face them in prayer? I don't know about you, but speaking for myself, unfortunately, prayer is too often a last resort and not an initial instinct. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. It's sad to say, but there are many times where, uh, many times, many weeks, or what happens, my week will go like this. I will pray and then start um, working on my sermon. And then you just kind of get into the rhythm of things. And it's like the mechanics. And so I just sit down and I open up the Bible and I open up the text and I just start working on it because, you know, I've preached a lot of these things and I know how to do this. And so I'm just going to churn my way through it. And, and then I kind of get a little later on in the week and then something happens like, I can't figure out what to say or I can't structure the text or my schedule gets thrown for a loop and I don't think I'm going to have time to write the sermon. And at that point, I'm like, I need to pray. And at that point, I'm like, and I haven't really been praying throughout this process. It happens to me like that sometimes. Sometimes it happens to me where I have dehabilitating back pain. And I think, Lord, help me. Help me to preach. Help me to communicate. That's what it's like for me. What is it like for you? I don't know what it looks like in your life, but here's what you need to know. Dependence is the goal of the Christian life. And where dependence is the objective, weakness is an advantage. When I am weak, then I am strong the Apostle Paul says. And it is when we are weak and when we come to the end of ourselves and when we realize that we can't do it, that we don't have the resources, that's when we pray. It's because prayer is a recognition of our weakness and it's a seeking of strength outside ourselves. Prayer is a recognition of our inability and it's a, a seeking of a competence outside of ourselves. And when we fail to pray, it either means that we are underestimating the problem or overestimating our strength and our ability or both. We were recently 
out with some friends, and they have a little daughter, and Neve's there with her, and they're looking for things to do. And they go through a um, they go through a series of board games that they're looking to kind of play with, and they find Cranium. Do you know anything about Cranium? Okay, my daughter's five and a half, right? Cranium is a pretty complex game, and Pam, my wife, tried to tell uh, Neve, my daughter, you know, that's a pretty complex game. Maybe you want to pick another game because the, the answers are, it's kind of for grown-ups and it's a little, and she goes, oh, no, no, mommy, that's okay. My friend can read. <sighs> she was fine because her friend could read. It, and at that point, then they get out the game and they're looking at it and, and Neve's like, well, read it. And she's like, how? D- it, d- uh, d- that's what they're trying to read. They can't, you know, but they can read. And at that point, it's kind of like you, you just realize, um, I think you both underestimated the difficulty of the game and you overestimated your ability, right? We do that all the time. Life is like one big game of cranium. And there are these serious, complex problems. And we're like going and we're like, oh, it's okay, I can read. I got this. I got this. You know, I'm like, look, I've been to Bible study. I can handle this, right? You, you face someone who has some problems. I can, I, can, I can handle this. Oh, marriage problems, you know, that's all right. I've been in relationships before. I can do this. We think that we can handle these problems and we overestimate our ability and we underestimate the problem. And that's exactly what the disciples do here. And the problem they face is nothing less, though, mind you, demonic. Notice that verse 20, and in verse 20, when Jesus comes up, the demon recognizes him and throws the boy on the ground and there's convulsing. And just so that you don't think that this was just like, oh, we thought it was a demon, but it really wasn't a demon. In verse 25, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. Mark thinks that there is a level here, that there's something going on beyond just epilepsy. Now, I realize that for some of us in here, we think that sounds utterly ridiculous. I mean, utterly ridiculous. The demonic, am I really supposed to believe in that? But that's because that, again, we live in a world without windows, and Mark lives in a world with windows. And Mark actually believes that there is demonic and demonic forces in this world, and they're at play in the ordinary interactions of everyday life. You say, well, wait a second, Kyle. If this was true, then why don't we see this kind of stuff today? But you don't understand what that assumes. That assumes that the demonic works itself out in the transnormal. But that's not Mark's view of the world. The demonic does not work itself out in the transnormal. The demonic works itself out in the everyday affairs of arguing Pharisees and political leaders The demonic works itself out in the ordinary elections that put Hitler in power and in the church's silence over segregation. That's demonic. And Mark says there are layers to this world 
And these come out only with prayer. So if Mark's view of the world is true, then I would suggest that most of us, most of the time, underestimate the problem. And we are bringing a knife to a gunfight. And it's not enough just to know theology, and it's not enough just to know Bible study, and it's not enough just to speak the right words. We need to pray and realize that our battle is not against flesh and blood. But behind flesh and blood, there are greater powers. See, when we overestimate, we underestimate the problem, but we also overestimate our ability to solve the problem You know, feeling incompetent is actually an advantage if this is true. Helplessness is an advantage because it's then and only then that we will look outside ourselves to another. So what Jesus is saying, I think, in verse 19 is simply this. He's saying, oh, faithless generation, when are you going to learn to trust in me? How long must I remain here and do the work directly? And when am I going to be able to use you because you don't think that you can do it all on yourself and you look to me for help? When are you going to learn to trust in me so that I can ascend to the glory of my Father and you can depend on me and my power there? That's what Jesus is saying. What would it look like to depend on Jesus in that way? We don't have to guess. Mark gives us an example in the passage. And it's the Father. Notice this exchange between Jesus and the Father in verse 21. Jesus asks him what's going on and the Father answers verse 21 and how long he's been uh, experiencing this. And the Father answers from childhood. Then he goes on, verse 22, And if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now don't miss the exchange of what's going on here. Jesus says, All things are possible for the one who believes. And then he goes on to heal the man's son. Which means the man must believe. That's what it means. And yet it's a curious kind of belief, isn't it? Because the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. Which looks really feeble and weak and like this weak faith, right? But I want to suggest to you that there is probably no more robust statement of faith in the entire Bible than this one. What is faith? Faith is a recognition of personal bankruptcy and looking outside yourself to another. Faith is a recognition of righteousness bankruptcy and looking to Jesus for his righteousness. Faith is a recognition of ability bankruptcy and looking to Jesus for his power. Faith is a recognition of moral bankruptcy and looking to Jesus for his morality. Faith is looking inside and saying... I do not have the resources, and so I'm going to look outside. And this man, when he looks inside, what he realizes is that even his faith is insufficient. And so he looks outside himself for faith. 
That's faith. You see, paradoxically, faith doesn't say, I believe, full stop. Faith says, when I look at myself, I see that my faith is insufficient and inadequate, but I trust you and that you can give me faith. That's the most robust kind of faith you could ever have or hope for. You see, paradoxically, true faith, biblical faith, gospel faith, recognizes the bankruptcy of faith itself and looks outside itself. Now, for some of us, this is incredibly challenging news because we like to think of ourselves as those who are unwavering and undoubting and believe. And I think that Jesus' challenge to us is the same as the Laodiceans. You claim to be rich, but you are poor and weak and sick. See, this challenges those of us who, who would look down on others for their doubts, who would look down on others for, feeling, for seeming to be weak in faith. But this is also terribly encouraging for others of us in here. Because some of you in here, you think, I just don't have enough faith to be a Christian. I don't have enough faith to follow Jesus. I don't have enough faith to serve him in ministry. I don't have enough faith to participate in his kingdom this way. And to you, Jesus says, guess what? That's the starting point. You're in the best position. I can work with that. That's the actual, that's the necessary criteria that you realize that you are inadequate, that even your faith is inadequate. Now look to me, and I can do it, and I will do it. When I was in middle school, our church would go on trips, and one of the trips that we would go on to kind of have the, the kids bond and things like that is that we would go to um, these lakes that weren't too far away, and we would, we would water ski. And, uh, and I remember going, and in middle school, you know, um, not you, but me, always worried about, like, how, your parent, how you look to others, right, and your parents, and how they are looking at you. And, of course, we get over that in middle school, and that doesn't happen anymore in life. But, and middle school was particularly pressing, and I was in middle school, and, uh, and I, hadn't, I hadn't water skied before. And so we're out at this uh, lake, and it's my turn, and I get in there, and I am determined. I am determined. I'm going to get up. And some people are talking about how they, get up, they got up on their first try and all this stuff, and I'm like, I am going to get up because, you know, there are guys that I got to impress and girls that got to impress, so I am going to get up. So, you know, I'm back there. I'm in the water. They rev up the boat engine, and then they crank it. And I strained and pulled so hard because I was going to get up. And I didn't get up. And then I did it again. And I strained and pulled and tried so hard. Because, you know, I'm, I was a pretty strong middle schooler, right? Like, I can do this. And I, I pulled hard and I went right, right in the water. And this happened like ten times, right? At that point, I'm just kind of like, I've become beaten. The boat in the water beat me. I'm totally whipped. And I'm thinking, I can't do this. And they just go, just sit back. And I just sat back and I held on and I went straight up. And what I realized was this. When I looked inside and decided 
I'm going to use my power and my strength and I'm going to muscle through this and get myself up? Well, then I couldn't get up. It wasn't until I was like completely tired and whipped and beat and realized, you know what? I just got to admit it. I'm not a good water skier. I'm not a natural. That I sat back and let the power of the boat take me. And I trusted in the power of the boat. Faith is trusting in the power of the boat. It's trusting in the power of God to lift you up out of the water and to take you along. And one of the hardest things in the world is to sit back in prayer and lean into the power of the boat and not try to do it all on our own. But that's what Jesus is calling us to do as his disciples so that he can minister to us and through us to this world. Amen.